0: Turn with me again this morning to the book of Acts as we continue in our series through this book. Uh, back to chapter 5, and we're going to read the same account that we read last week. If, if you were here last week, we really went through this whole story, uh, Acts 5, 12, through the end of the chapter. This morning, we're going to read the same, and, uh, but, but focus on, on some smaller pieces Uh, on this uh, a second time. So Acts 5, I'm going to begin with verse 17 this week and read through the end of the chapter. So um, beginning with verse 12, it's speaking again of the apostles ministering again at the temple, preaching, healing, and so on. But we pick up in verse 17 and hear God's holy word. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted over, uh, to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to the, those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, "'Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men.' For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed were scattered.' So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. The word uh, oxymoron comes from two Greek words put together. The oxy part means dull, or sharp, rather, sorry, and the, the moron part means dull. And so it's, it's a word, uh, two words smashed together, figuratively, sharp sharp or, or smart, wise, together with dull or, or stupid, foolish. And so it means something like smartly foolish. And it's, it's a word that's nonsensical on its face, right, by, by intention, and that's the way we use Oxymoron to point to things that are, or at least sound like, they're they're contradictory words or phrases. Sometimes um, phrases are identified as oxymorons uh, for the humorous effect, like "honest politician," for example, or uh, my favorite, uh, "Microsoft Works." <laughs> uh, now it's Office, so the joke is over. But um, Mark Twain would use longer form oxymoronic statements like when he explained it usually takes about three weeks to create a good impromptu speech. Um, oxymorons are often more serious. They're, they're intended to communicate something true about our complex reality. So an, uh, an open secret uh, or a deafening silence uh, or the word bittersweet. Uh, the truth of the gospel creates in our world some powerful paradoxes that are described appropriately with, with, we might say, biblical oxymorons. And that's particularly true around the concept of suffering uh, of various kinds. Because on the one hand, suffering is, is not a part of God's good creation. It's, it's always caused by some evil, some aspect of the curse. It's something that's been overcome by Jesus, something that we long to see the end of. And yet, on the other hand, suffering is used by God. And the Bible says, in some sense, we embrace it. In Philippians 3, Paul says he longs to share in Christ's sufferings. In in 2 Corinthians, he says we do share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And so it's it's an inescapable paradox of the life of Christians. And we see that lived out in this passage by the apostles. and, And they're responding to it in an incredible way. For the sake of Christ. So, we want to revisit this passage this week and, and really focus narrowly on that theme uh, of their suffering and their response to it. And so, the three points you see in your bulletin there this morning are, are three oxymorons, three biblical oxymorons that, that yet reflect the apostles' experience and their, their identity in Christ uh, and our identity in Christ as well. <clears throat> The first one, number one in your outline, is rescued to suffer, rescued to suffer. You'll recall back in chapter 4, the apostles had already been warned uh, after they have been arrested not to preach in Jesus' name anymore, and, and we find them then again preaching in the temple, preaching Jesus. And so where we began reading this morning, they, they get arrested again, and they're put in a public jail or uh, jailed publicly. We talked about that, that phrase last week a bit, that the point is simply they're They're publicly uh, put to shame. The the Sanhedrin's goal is to make a point of them, to shut them up uh, and to shame them. Uh, But as we read this morning, again, God sends his angel and he opens the doors of the prison. They escape. Uh, Somehow they get past the the guards and and nobody knows how they escaped. And this, we talked last week about the fact it shows that, that God is sovereign. God is showing that he and not the Sanhedrin are in control. Um, that he will protect his people as, as he wishes. He's going to build his church and advance his gospel. Now, I've, I've long been fascinated to some degree by prison escapes. And Owen and I not too long ago watched some of a series uh, narrated by Morgan Freeman on, on famous prison escapes. Uh, each episode is one. Oh, thank you. And, um, of course, the first one is Alcatraz. Uh, they, they narrate on, on site there. Um, they also go through uh, more recent uh, El Chapo's escape. He's a famous drug lord. He escaped from a prison in Mexico because his buddies dug like a mile-long tunnel uh, right up into his cell. It's an incredible escape. But in every case, in prison escapes, we can ask, what, what is a prison escape for? Right? What, what do the inmates do as soon as they get out? They, they ran, right? You run and hide uh, universally, a prison escape is is to be free, and and you know usually right when it happens, you know that it's going to be discovered fairly soon, and so you run and you and you hide. And so what happens here in this passage? The angel lets the apostles out of jail and then whisks them into the mountains to hide. Right? No, that's not what happens. That's what's so striking about this story. The angel lets them out of jail and then says essentially, "Okay, do it again. Back to the temple." Of course, they'll be arrested again. And it'll go even worse for them this time. I do think this this rescue of sorts functions as a great encouragement to the apostles. It certainly was an assurance to them of God's protection. And uh, it's an assurance to us of God's control and his sovereignty. But what I want you to see is they were not rescued for themselves. Uh, They weren't rescued to be free. They weren't rescued to go home and be with their families here to hide. They were rescued for faithfulness, uh, for more suffering, really. Now, if the apostles had managed to escape on their own and they didn't have an angel there telling them to, okay, do it again uh, immediately, would it have been wrong for them to go and hide for a bit or go and see their families for a while? I I don't think that would be the case at all, even though they, they did have this general commission to preach the gospel in Jerusalem that they, they weren't to run from. But it's not, it, the point is not it's wrong to, to escape danger or to try to move from suffering to comfort in, in many different circumstances, but, but this story illustrates for us what is ultimate, right? what we were created for and redeemed for, the apostles were created for, for the glory of God, right? to make much of our Savior Jesus with our lives, and not first to simply try to get out of or avoid trouble and hard things. And so I think this, this story ought to challenge you to think, what, what do you do with God's deliverances? What are God's blessings in your life for? Uh, maybe God delivers you from an illness or from a persecution or a, 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 you know ill treatment at work or a bad relationship or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's just God blesses you with some extra time or a slower week. How do you view that? Do you, do you simply spend those blessings on yourself? Or do you see it as an opportunity to, to bring glory to God, to invest in his kingdom uh, in a greater way, whatever that might mean? I was reading recently about a, uh, a Russian girl named Aida Skripnikova. <laughs> Aida was born um, near the end of World War II in Leningrad uh, in Russia, and she came to faith then when she was 19 years old, Aida did. So This by this time, uh, this is, is deep into Soviet uh, oppression. Uh, and in her zeal as a, as a newly redeemed servant of King Jesus, she had a lot of concern for her millions of fellow Russians who were, who were lost, spiritually lost. And she wrote a poem one day, a poem that was intended to... Share the Lord with others. Call people to the Lord. Uh, I'll read that poem for you uh, briefly. This is what she wrote. It's, it doesn't sound like the best poetry ever. It's translated from the Russian. You can keep that in mind. But uh, she, said, she wrote, Our years fly past, one after another, unnoticed. Grief and sadness disappear. They're carried away by life. This world, the earth, is so transient. Everything in it comes to an end. Life is important. What answer will you give your Creator? What awaits you, my friend, beyond the grave? Answer this question while light remains. Perhaps tomorrow, before God, you will appear to give an answer for everything. Think deeply about this, for you are not on this earth forever. Perhaps tomorrow you will break forever your links with this world. Seek God while he is to be found. So this is what this young teenage girl wrote, and she went and got lots of postcards, and she made many, many, many copies of this poem on postcards, and then she stood on what's essentially the main street in Leningrad there, uh, and um, handed out her postcards to anyone who would take one. Well, this was of course illegal uh, under under the communists, and she was arrested. She was tried in a communist court in 1962, and she was exiled from Leningrad from her home, lost her job. Now, Aida's father had already been a number of years before arrested and shot. And her her mother had died as well. So what's Aida going to do? Uh, What might we have done? Maybe she'll just settle down quietly in some other corner of Russia, or maybe maybe try to escape to Western Europe. Well, she actually made her way back to Leningrad. This is modern-day St. Petersburg. Uh, And she was arrested again in 1965, handing out evangelistic poems, calling people to the Lord on the main streets of Leningrad. And this time she was sent to a labor camp in Siberia. And then in 1968, there she was again, telling people about Jesus in Leningrad. And she's arrested and tried uh, in a more formal trial. And she's sent to a labor camp for three years this time. Uh, and and that Aida would be arrested a fourth time at some point in her life as well. Now it's remarkable that Aida wasn't uh, just disappeared, right, like her father was. Uh, it's rather remarkable she got these relatively short sentences. But what did she do with that remarkable providence? Uh, how did she view it? She essentially said, God is giving me another opportunity to share Jesus on the streets of Leningrad. And and, and back she went. She was rescued, as she saw it, for faithfulness. Rescued for suffering, for the sake of Christ. It's, it's an example of, strikingly similar to the the direction of the angels here. Do it again. And again, I think a challenge to us, what what are God's blessings and deliverances for in your life? We'll come to two, uh, two more prison escapes in the book of Acts as we go through this series, but we should recognize this is not usually God's Uh, way. It's not usually God's will, even in the the New Testament, certainly through church history, to dramatically or miraculously get his people out of prison. Next chapter will begin the story of Stephen. Stephen is not miraculously delivered. He's he's stoned. Uh, Paul will be under arrest or in prison for years, Uh, not miraculously released. But my point is, whichever kind of suffering For the sake of Christ, God called these these people, too, in the New (laughs) Testament, whether in prison or maybe even more suffering out of prison, he was calling them to faithfulness, to be be willing to share in the sufferings of Christ and seek the kingdom and witness to Christ right where they were. So Paul does that powerfully as he's imprisoned. Um, Stephen uh, does that powerfully, as is recorded in Acts 6 and 7. before he stoned. Uh, I heard testimony of a man in, in Florida once at a Gideon's event. He talked about how he was a, a hardened criminal at one time. Serving a, a, a pretty good amount of time in prison. Um, he came to Christ largely through a, a Gideon New Testament that was brought to the prison. Um, and then he was a, a, an eager disciple of Christ. And shared, shared Christ with everyone that he could in the prison. And um, I thought, you know, it might, you might think at that point, Lord, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if this changed man, if you'd let him out of prison now, you know, and let him uh, share Christ with many people out, out in the free world. But it was interesting, this guy wasn't viewing it that way. He saw himself called right where he was to witness to Christ. And, of course, he wasn't suffering for faith. He was in there for his real uh, and serious crimes in jail Uh, But he spoke even of the fact that he couldn't wait to be transferred to some other prison. So he'd have new people to share the gospel with, because he didn't have anyone else who hadn't heard him talk about it already. Again, my point is, until you go to be with the Lord, there will be more painful opportunities to witness your faith in Christ, uh, in your life. Hard circumstances to show uh, how much Christ means to you. So wherever you are right now, whatever you're experiencing, it's, it's in that thing that God desires to, to glorify himself through your faithfulness. So we saw the, the, the apostles here uh, rescued for suffering. Secondly, a second oxymoron comes at the end of our, our story here. Uh, the apostles, in, in their response to their arrest and flogging, uh, number two is worthy to suffer. Worthy to suffer. Recall that, that the apostles were uh, arrested again they're, uh, after they go back to the temple at the angel's instruction. They're arrested. They're brought before the council, and the council is raging mad. They want to kill the apostles, right? But Gamaliel, we talked about this last week, Gamaliel stands up and um, calls them to caution and, and to a more uh, careful Uh, approach to this and they end at something of a compromise because they do let the apostles go uh, but not before flogging them and we shouldn't read that too quickly or easily this is almost certainly the the greek reference here to the uh, 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 this is almost certainly the roman 40 minus 1 the famous 39 lashings that was so brutal it it could and sometimes did uh, kill people people died from from blood loss from this it um, certainly take weeks, months to recover from that, and just imagine you know, trying to sleep, um, all kinds of things from that brutal uh, beating. And yet, we read in verse 41, and so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer, shame for his name, uh, worthy to suffer. The, the Greek word behind worthy, much like our English word, means to be deserving of priv- some privilege or honor. Uh, it's, this exact word is only used two other times in the New Testament. Uh, in Second Thessalonians, Paul says that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. A wonderful thing to be worthy of, right? It's a, it's a positive reference. Luke 20, Jesus speaks of those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection, both of those references are wonderful things to be worthy of, privileges to receive. And then here, the only other use in the New Testament, it's, it's worthy to suffer. The Sanhedrin had the apostles flogged to shame them, to, to dishonor them. And, and this in a, a society that was strongly shame-honor oriented in, in a way that ours, ours here in the West is not. Um, And yet they leave the council, covered in blood, uh, with stinging and searing pain, beyond what I can imagine, publicly humiliated, and yet feeling honored, is what we're told. They had the honor of dishonor, in a sense. They were worthy to suffer for Jesus. They they were faithful in such a way that is, their, their love for Jesus was real, their loyalty to him as a suffering king was such that God counted them worthy to show the glory of Christ through them through suffering as as Christ himself had done and they evidently see this as as their greatest honor they're honored to have suffered I think it ought to prompt you to think what what is an honor for you Uh, we're right now in uh, what's commonly called award season Right? So we have the Golden Globes and the Emmys and Chili Cook-Off and you know, um, the Oscars, right? Uh, all these things, really a bunch of rich celebrities you know, throw banquets for each other and give each other awards. Um, in many ways, it's kind of a big, silly exercise in self-congratulatory narcissism, right? Uh, but, but think how cheap that kind of worldly honor is, Uh, Over against recognizing the the honor of knowing the love of God of the universe for you personally. And maybe especially in suffering. Knowing the nearness and the love of God for you and being called by him to show Christ to others through that. Uh, That's what the the apostles are experiencing here. If, If you're in Christ, that worthiness and that calling is yours. It's for those who know the infinite worth of the suffering of Christ for you. Uh, You who are in Christ ought to view any hardship as, in part, an opportunity to show Christ, to show how great he is to you, to show your conviction that because he died in your place, the death that you deserved, and loved you with an everlasting love, that nothing can separate you from The love of God. And so nothing, sickness or death or persecution, whatever it might be, can diminish your loyalty to him. Your love for him. Your trust in him. And the apostles recognized, I think, that they had a more powerful opportunity than otherwise to show that. God allows our hard times to show that most clearly to others. Well, a final oxymoron then coming out of this passage this morning is rejoicing in suffering, Uh, rejoicing in suffering. Again, verse 41, we read, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And again, just imagine this scene. Certainly, all the apostles bent over in pain, um, covered in gashes, publicly humiliated, and, and it must have been a spectacle in the middle of Jerusalem that day. And just imagine, as, as they're walking away from this, publicly shamed and, and probably a mess and in horrible pain, people observing them and, and, and beginning to look with astonishment and saying, they're praising God. They're giving thanks. Now, is this some kind of supernatural rejoicing here? Well, I think in some sense it is. Surely it's, it's by the, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. But, it, but is this, this rejoicing in this scene, is it something just for super apostles? Or is it an example for us, for all believers? We might understandably be a little afraid of that question. I, and I think it is the latter, though. And that's not to say that there wasn't much pain to deal with. And that we might not imagine that, that they did go home and weep over their suffering and their pain with their families, perhaps. And yet the apostles will write, as they write the New Testament after this, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always. Paul knew this same kind of suffering. Romans 5, he said, we do rejoice in our sufferings. James in James 1 says, count it all joy when you meet with various trials, various sufferings. R. Kent Hughes writes about uh, Richard Wormbrand. Some of you probably have heard of Richard Wurmbrand, a Christian pastor, also imprisoned uh, by communists for preaching Christ, um, imprisoned in Romania. <coughs> Wormbrand was tortured, beaten, all kinds of horrible ways. He, he spent... One time, a three-year stretch in solitary confinement. He was in a, a tiny cell that was 12 feet underground with no windows. Uh, the, the guards would apparently walk around with felt on their shoes, just so it was totally silent just to increase his suffering. Um, he kept sane by, in that time by reciting scripture and by writing sermons in his mind every day and then preaching them in the dark to the wall every night. And Hughes writes this, About Wormbrand. He says, Amazingly, during all that, there were times when he was overcome with joy. He would actually stand up in his weakened state and dance around his cell, confident the angels were dancing with him. And he he recounts further when Wormbrand was finally released, he was in prison for decades. He was released somewhat suddenly. He was was dressed in rags, his teeth were falling out, and he was walking home. And he came across a lady carrying strawberries, and she offered him a strawberry, and he went to take it, and then he stopped and said, No, thank you. I I think I'll go fast. And he went home and fasted and prayed with his wife as as a memorial to the joy that God had allowed him while he was in prison. And we can ask in that situation equally, how could how could Richard Wormbrand rejoice? How could the apostles rejoice? Why would they? And so, I want to suggest four reasons briefly, um, four reasons from this passage and, and from the rest of the New Testament in part, why they could rejoice. And the first is they could rejoice because they're obeying God. They're rejoicing because they were obeying God. When, when Peter stands in front of the Sanhedrin again here in this chapter and has a chance to, to speak, and preach again. His, his speech here is framed by obedience. He says in verse 29, the very first thing he says, famously, we must obey God rather than men. That's what they knew they were doing. And then his speech ends in verse 32 with the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And that reflects exactly what the apostles were doing. They were let out of prison. The, the, the angel said, okay you have opportunity to keep preaching in the temple. And they, they went straight there before the sun was up, we're told. There's a great joy and confidence in knowing that you're obeying God, that you're walking with the Lord, to know that whatever you're doing, however painful, it's, it's serving a God who loves you and protects you and guides you and will bring you, you perfect justice and peace one day, a God that you trust and know. Our, our obedience doesn't earn us favor with God, but it, it shows us God's favor. It shows that he really is with us. He's at work in us. He's changed us. And I think that's one, certainly one source of their joy here. Secondly, they could rejoice because they're sharing with Jesus. They're united to Jesus. This, this experience ties them to him, maybe more powerfully than anything they've experienced so far. You think of some of the outward parallels Jesus was dragged before the Sanhedrin. Now they have been. Jesus was falsely accused. Uh, Jesus was, in a sense, locked up in a prison, uh, locked in a tomb, and then miraculously released. Maybe some of these things are on their mind. They must have had Jesus' promises ringing in their ears. If, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hated me, they will hate you. It's remarkable that the apostles then will go on to write... Uh, in the rest of the New Testament, Peter will write in first Peter four, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And Paul in Philippians three says that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Or Paul in Second Corinthians one, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So this this event surely, I think, showed them their union with Christ, that they were identified with him. He was identified with them, uh, more importantly. Uh, And and, and that's reflected in in, uh, their joy. Um, Thirdly, uh, they could rejoice because of the honor to lift up his name. Uh, Verse 41, again, tells us they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame For his name. They saw it as an honor to show their love and loyalty to Jesus. To show his greatness and power through their suffering. As an opportunity to lift up his name. Again, 1 Peter 4. Peter writes, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He goes on, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God. In that name, they sought honor and not shame uh, in, in what was intended to absolutely humiliate them. Jesus in the Beatitudes had said, Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all, other, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account or in my, in my name. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said, for your reward is great in heaven. I think this is a reminder to us that how we suffer as Christians, how we go through trials, uh, shows powerfully that we belong to God, right? That He's with us. That our, His name is on us. And then fourthly, and finally, I think they rejoiced uh, even in this circumstance uh, for the blessing, for the blessing that they were convicted. was in uh, hard things under God's sovereignty. Uh, the New Testament writers will encourage the church repeatedly in the New Testament to rejoice even in suffering because of the great blessing God uses it for, how he turns it for good, for life and perseverance. Uh, so James in James 1, I already mentioned this earlier, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. All right, and steadfastness, maturity, he says. Uh, Romans 5, I referenced this already where Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's people are made uh, powerful spiritual warriors for the kingdom as they're matured. As we're matured in suffering, as you come to know the love and the suffering of Jesus for you more, perhaps more fully, understand him more, more deeply, know your need for him more deeply uh, through hard things. Uh, these, are, these are really incalculable blessings. They're the, they're the greatest blessings God gives us in maturing us, making us like Christ, uh, Samuel Rutherford, when he wrote of what he called the sellers of affliction, he said, to make this point, the great king keeps his wine down there, uh, his, his, his finest things for us. Spurgeon wrote that they who dive in the sea of affliction uh, bring up rare pearls indeed. Uh, we can rejoice even in suffering, knowing that God is faithful, that he's powerfully at work to care for us. Uh, to glorify His love and His grace, to show His love and His grace for us. Um, sometimes that's shown to others through your patience and your hope and your love uh, in hard times, maybe in ways that you don't even know. I talked earlier about this this young girl Aida Skripnikova, who was arrested again and again in, in Leningrad um, when she was tried by the Soviets uh, ahead of her three years in a labor camp in 1968. Um, she, it was just this little trial before a, a panel of communists uh, in, a, in a room. And um, unbeknownst to her, though, someone in the back was secretly transcribing the entire trial. Uh, most most importantly, her, her testimony uh, before those who were trying her. And they, they recorded this whole, that they transcribed the whole trial on strips of bed sheets. And the reason they did that was because they could be, wrapped around someone as they were then and then smuggled out of uh, the courthouse or wherever they were and then smuggled out of the Soviet Union. Uh, and those, that, those transcripts, particularly her testimony, which she thought she was just giving in a small dark room, were then copied and, and sent around the world uh, and was a witness, a powerful witness and encouragement um, to believers around the world uh, to see her joyful testimony in Christ. I just want to close with the encouragement then to you to, to grow in the knowledge and the love of, of Christ, to study how wide and deep and long is his love and so that when times come, uh, hard times come, you'll be ready and willing to suffer with faith with, with a full sense of the worthiness of Christ uh, for your trust and loyalty and patience in that uh, and so that you will be ready even perhaps to rejoice, uh, knowing the many reasons in Christ that you have, uh, as Paul says, to rejoice always. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we thank you again this morning for your word. We ask that you would help us to see our suffering, our trials in the light of Christ's suffering and his victory. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us a real and a full sense of his worthiness for our loyalty and trust and help. Uh, Lord, help us to rejoice always in your love for us. And we pray all this in Christ and for his sake. Amen.